Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Three people and you're going to have four weeks do something. <laughs> it started out of pure stubbornness, which is great. <laughs> Without necessarily meaning to, I think we found this quite interesting niche. No, we did some stuff, and the fact that it's invisible means it works. <laughs> I think art is encoded knowledge and uh, experience. At that time, we were really fascinated by the whole transmedia concept. That was it, not the time-travelling robot idea that we had. Hello, I am Sam Fry, and this is Technique, the podcast where we speak to artists about technology. Today, we have a returning guest. Here he is. Hello, everyone. I'm Tim. I'm a writer and I'm a digital creative. That was the voice of Tim Kindberg. You might remember Tim from episode 27 of the podcast, which was titled Technology for Skeptics. In that episode, my co-host Richard Adams spoke to Tim about his work as a digital technologist. This included talking about some of the social video platforms that Tim has created, such as VORB and Nth Screen, alongside other technologies for people to act collectively and creatively. Well, since then, Tim has written a book called Vampires of Avonmouth. It is essentially a gothic science fiction story, which explores some of the themes that were talked about last time Tim was on the podcast. Originally, this was recorded ahead of the book being launched last month on Thursday, the 18th of March. Unfortunately, due to our busy schedules, we were unable to put this podcast out before that date. But the good news is this means that the book is now available. So in this episode, Richard catches up with Tim and they talk about the book, why Tim wrote it and some of the themes that it explores. In which case, I'll hand over to the interview, which starts with Richard reflecting on the last time they both spoke. In, in the past, we've, we, we've talked to you about your work on creating platforms for artists and that's been virtual reality and all sorts of other things. I know that alongside that you've been writing things but you've suddenly managed to sort of make the leap and you've now gone whole hog and you've got a proper you know published book and I just wonder why the book? Well I've always written to be honest with you I mean always always but I've just done it in a corner of my time and this Believe It or Not is my third novel about nine or ten years ago I published a young adult book called Shadows of Marrakesh which sits there on Amazon unmarketed by me somewhere Um, (laughs) I've I've written a book for kids but this one is kind of special to me Vampires of Avonmouth it's it's been going for a while it's taken me a long time because I only write in the early mornings and I actually wrote the second of the book I mentioned in the middle of writing this one But this one's special to me and it's got a lot of themes in it that relate to how I think sceptically about the world in terms of the technology that pervades it. But it's also got other themes going about how we are in the world and our being in the world and particularly our being in very highly technologised worlds. So Obviously one of the things I was interested in when we first talked was that sceptic sort of nature and I guess on sort of looking through the book there is a feeling of worry or angst or something about the way technology is going 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's positively dystopian, I, I would characterise it as. I mean, it, it envisages a world where we have become slaves to technology. The book is set in 2087, which happens to be 100 years after my son's birth. It's, that was just a sort of fairly it's a bit random, but that was how I chose that. You know, it's, it's far enough in the future for things to be quite different. And it's set between, as I put it, West Africa and the West Country, um, set around near here in Bristol, actually not very much in Bristol itself, but around here in Avonmouth in Western Supermare of all places. And it's about a detective. He's a detective for the ID police because the only crime of any significance, because the physical world has been completely de-emphasised in 2087. And it's instead a world of content. And that content is pumped directly into people's brains from people's brains and into people's brains. There's no mobile phones or anything anymore. And in that world where we're all experiencing the kind of cognitive overload of, of all this content that's coming into our brains, we're too numbed to have much concern with the physical world because everything's happening inside our minds. So it's a sort of logical extrapolation, I suppose you could say, of, what, of the way we are now. We're, instead of me staring at this rhomboidal thing or this cuboidal thing in my hand it's actually all going on in my head directly the world is so numbed that there's no property or physical world related crime it's all id crime it's people pretending to be what they're not in this world and by the way these this content is called sensor um, as in sense data it's sensor that comes into my mind from your mind or my or, or, or vice versa or indeed from the authorities straight into our minds in kind of broadcasts so David is this detective who solves ID crimes, but in fact, he's a very embittered man, lost man, sad man, because he's had to exile himself from his daughter, who is still back in West Africa or West Africa, as it's known then. And the reason he's exiled himself from her is that in his mind is a vampire spirit, which is waiting to get out. And so I've sort of gone for, we've got this sort of, it's a sort of, is it a physical spirit? Is it a digital spirit? You can't really be sure in this world because my mind is partly a function of the brain. It's partly a function of the electronic content that's entering it. So is it a virtual, is it supernatural or is it super virtual? We don't know. But this spirit is a, a very bad spirit, to put it mildly, which is such that if he, has any feelings for somebody, it wants to get out and do its thing to that person. And, and what its thing is, it's a vampire spirit, but it's not a blood vampire spirit, it's a psychic vampire spirit. And it will consume the mind of, of anybody it wants to. And it doesn't consume David's mind because actually it's been implanted in a rather botched way by these sort of cyber criminals back in West Aff. And it's in a kind of mental cage inside his mind, but the cage door starts to open if he starts to love anybody. So it's a sort of disease of his mind. It's a digital spirit in his mind. It's a, you know, a witchcraft spirit in his mind. It's somehow an amalgam of all these things in this, in this world. One of the things that came out very strongly, I mean, I mean, you mentioned it there with David exiling, but there is a sense of sort of exile, isolation, loneliness to all the, 
the characters, which is a classic gothic trope, actually. I mean, it, it's, if you go back through gothic novels, there's an awful lot of them that are dealing with isolation. And what one thing that struck me was, of course, 200 years ago at the birth of gothic as we know it, things like Frankenstein dealt with the technology of the time. Mm-hmm. The fact they discovered electricity and what it was, and they thought, well, if we're powered by it, if we pump it in, can we bring things to life? And here, in your book, 300 years later, we're still dealing with grappling in a gothic sense with the technology. And is that deliberate or is that just... Yeah, something? yeah, I think that is deliberate. It's very much about the sort of monstrousness of the technology or, or the monstrousness of the things that technology can do to us. Because, you know, with the, the population, the gen pop, as it's called, mm. they're not literally slaves, but they're mentally slaves to this content at, the, at this point. And in fact, West Af is the one part of the world that it does have this technology, but they haven't allowed themselves to be completely existentially obliterated by it like we have. And that's very much that. Also let AI go rampant and it's dodgy AI. It doesn't work very well. AI It's certainly not a vision of, you know, AI as all consuming hyper intelligence. There's a robot in this book, which is the assistant to David, and he's a bit of a doofus, really. He turns out to be quite key in, in, in the story. But he is a robot, you know, and and these robots are everywhere. So we are coexisting with robots who are all a bit useless, really. But we're kind of subservient to. to Yeah, I I think there's there's two things there, isn't there? There's the the, the one thing that struck me was the sensor beat. You know, the fact that there seems to be a a sort of rite of passage that people get to a certain age and, and the beads are put in and then they are subservient I, I don't think it's i think you're right it's not slaves to it's subservience to just the impulses yeah. and to the information and 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 there's that and, and i think that is very much a social media trope isn't it because i've been reading this week about facebook changing their algorithms to squeeze out certain businesses and political views versus other political views and so on and we're entering that and we're entering that world with AI that is turning out to be biased and badly programmed. Exactly. And that's what I've been arguing for many years is that it's, you know, first of all, it's not capable of almost all the things that people seem to want to think it's capable of. But secondly, that it that it is actually something that needs to be heavily regulated because it's used in a way that has a strong impact on people's lives in an unregulated way. And that really shouldn't be allowed because it's bad for social justice. And in this world that I'm positing, somehow that regulation never took place and it's all over the place and almost everything is an algorithm. You know, an algorithm controls which part of Avonmouth, the megacity as it is in 2087, there's an algorithm that controls which bits of it I can go to. You know, everything is algorithm. The media that's coming into my head is algorithmically determined. Everything is algorithm. And there's a whole sense that the algorithm is in the ascendant and the physical world is in the descendant. There are rebels in this world. And the rebels say the truth is offline. Yeah. And, you know, West Ham still has a little bit of offline left. It's a place he pines for, not just because his daughter is there, but it, there's a character called Pempamsi. There are the Adinkra symbols that come from that part of the world, which, which was one of the reasons I wrote this book. I went to Ghana, I went to Accra, and I, I found these Adinkra symbols there, which I thought were fascinating. And Pempamsi is named after an Adinkra symbol. And one of the Adinkra symbols she quotes is Nkonso Konso, which is a chain of human links never break apart. It's, it's the opposite. We're fractured and 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 fragmented and sharded, to use the technology term, 
atmosphere, whereas in West F, they, they have that human chain still. I mean, I guess it does seem that both of us, you know, we both live in the UK and it's it's uh, it does feel everything is fragmenting at the moment. And, and the, the, the sense of consensus that I think a couple of world wars gave us has disappeared well and truly. Mm. But it's interesting for me that you've sort of isolated it down to individuals because of the nature of that social media thing where people isolate themselves, cut themselves off. They're sat in front of a screen of some kind and they just interact with the world as this view. And that is almost vampiric in a way Mm. because it seems to be encouraging people to do that. Yes, it's a sort of double think, really, is that we, we, we think of ourselves being connected virtually, but actually we are, to a large extent, fragmented virtually. I'm not saying there's, no, there's nothing good about, you know, connecting with other people on in the virtual world. I mean, what we're doing now is a positive thing, but we've allowed ourselves to be manipulated by this technology rather than the other way around and all the people behind it, more precisely. And my novel is very much the kind of logical conclusion of that. The authority is I and I, it's I and I, we're eyes, supposedly in a collection of eyes living together in this sort of very finely brain connected internet world. But it's but it's nothing of the sort, it's just lots of lost people. I mean, that's interesting, the lost thing, isn't it? I think there's a lot of lost people using technology now. An awful lot cries for help regularly. I mean, I'm really interested that this has emerged from Africa because actually when, when someone like me thinks of Africa, we think of, I know Africa's got modern cities and it's all all developing and, and what have you, but it seems to have a different spiritual tradition in a lot of ways yeah. going back. And I wonder if, it, you know, and you've merged that with obviously vampires here. And I, was there anything in the symbols that, that sort of caused you to think, well, psychic vampires versus blood vampires? No, I think, so the symbols themselves, no. The vampiric theme is really the point you mentioned a little while ago, that that technology is vampiric on us. And is vampiric, it's obviously not sucking our blood, it's sucking our mental energy away. And that, of course, is exactly what a psychic vampire does. When I was a teenager, I studied English lit for O-level, for those of of you who can remember what what an O-level was. And we studied this book called The New Poetry, which was full of these fantastic poets. One of them was Ted Hughes. And Ted Hughes has a poem called Vampire, which is principally about a psychic vampire, actually. It describes this being who comes into the room and just sucks all the energy out of people. And I do feel that technology is taking our energy away in some respects. And this world that I'm positing is very much where that's happened. And when the vampire arrives in Avonmouth, it hardly makes things any worse than they were already. <laughs> <laughs> Which is quite ironic compared to yeah. Dracula in Whitby. Yeah, know? exactly, yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, Dracula in Whitby was like the disease we're all suffering from at the yes, minute. Yeah, it? it just yeah. let rip through society. Yes, Whereas indeed. you're right, you're right, this vampire's making no real difference. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, when the vampire, if the vampire gets you, your mind is entirely dissolved and you, you become something called a doll which still kind of sort of exists, but not really. So it is worse, <laughs> but only just. There's an interesting thing about neighbourliness pointed out to me in the book. I had uh, had my daughter read it uh, as well, and she pointed something out about neighbours that, that she said to me, nobody speaks to their neighbours. It's like they're living on top of each other, but they don't really interact. And again, yes. that's the chord very much. 
Yes. Well, there's a scene in the book where a stranger comes to David's door and knocks on the door. I mean, nobody knocks on a door, he, he says in the book. You know, what? <laughs> Someone's knocking on my door. And this guy is, well, it's, I won't go into it, the details, but this guy, you know, is another lost human being who who's, who's appeared on his doorstep. And this is an extremely unusual state of affairs. Um, you know, nobody does that anymore. Another thing that, that sort of came out when I was reading it was there's the guy, Mr. David, in the uh, in the home. The Mr. Only one. Charles, yeah, Mr. Charles. Charles, yeah. Mr. Charles, yeah. I apologize, yeah. He doesn't have dementia, but everybody does. And what struck me is, of course, in there you've got this thing about all the diseases kind of are cured except dementia and old age. Yes. And, and that that's rather bleak. Yes, <laughs> it is. I mean, well, it, there's an irony to this because the, the, the guy who invented the substance which is used to propagate mental content into one's brain because it's not it's not entirely digital it's kind of weirdly analog at the last at the last stage i mean it doesn't really make a huge amount of sense technologically but it's you know i'm allowed to do this in a book so the guy who invented that substance was actually searching for a cure for dementia and the bad guys got hold of this and turned it instead into a way of delivering this content into people's minds and to double the irony when you've had this stuff pumped into your mind for a certain amount of time, instead of it being the kind of mental, you know, we all know, don't we, that one of the ways of, of warding off dementia is to stay mentally very active. But this is like this is like mentally sitting on a couch the whole time. So it, it increases the onset of dementia. People are getting dementia earlier and earlier as a result of this. And the, they're called Dems in the book, the Dems, because they've been totally objectified by the society. They're, they've got no real value because there's no point pumping sensor into the mind of a Dem because they're a Dem. Their mind, minds are half gone. So why they don't have any value. You know, they're not producing valuable data. They're not really very interesting sinks for data. So they're not very interesting to a lot of people anymore, or not, certainly not to the corporate entities. And Mr. Charles has somehow ended up I based this on a on a real guy in a in a home. I said I just he just struck me so much to how he was so so much more aware than everybody around him, and he was having to live in this home, you know, where most of the people around him were just in a really state of real mental decline, you know. And he but he was such a lovely man, and he really stuck in my mind this guy. And yeah, David goes to visit him, and there's a chain of events that follows from that. Yeah. It strikes me you've done quite a lot through the book where you've put sort of metaphors within metaphors and, and, and that, that notion of there's a main character who's aware enough to cut himself off. Yes. Not things happening, but everybody yes. around him is lacking consciousness effectively and lacking self-awareness. Yes, that's right. So there is a sort of rule that if you if you serve the state, as it were, then you can you can have that stream of content shut off or you have more control over it. So there's a kind of I don't really talk too much about it. but There's a kind of an elite it's a bit like, you know, in, the, in a world of climate emergency, all the rich people are, gonna, are building their islands, right, so they can survive and the rest of us can go to hell. You know, it's a bit like that, that the, the elite in, that, in this society actually cut themselves off from this stream of censor because they're obviously aware of how debilitating it is, you know, and, you know, they don't need to be sold to. They, they have, I don't really talk about this too much in the book, but that's, that's the idea behind that. You know, but is there a it. metaphor there in, in our current media, you know, with, of our current media, because that's how it feels that there's a, an elite who can wade through what, what we have. 
there is all that. I mean, I, I, it's not that I don't don't think this, that there's anything good about social media because there clearly are some good things. And there are people, you know, who just that's their only way to the rest of the world, and that's that's great. But it has become the power balance between us and the corporations uh, whose platforms they are has clearly gone the wrong way round. We clearly need to reverse. Well, that's, that's, I mean, talk a little bit about I and I then, because it'd be quite mm. interesting to hear your description of that and to try and, and for listeners to work out you know, the bits of corporations that you're sort of including. <laughs> yeah, so there's a sort of strange, so there are no governments anymore. There's a government in Westaf. So Westaf still functions a little bit like we are now, except that it has in fact become the te- the techno hub of the world. So so technology is is principally developed in Westaf in this world. And then you have the, the, the North and South Poles where all the server farms are. Because, of course, we've got a world of climate change and they've gone to, you know, the receding poles, if you like, to to cool down all the massive data centers that are pumping all the sensor around. And then the the rest of the world is just the between. It's like this sort of befuddled massive of people who've (laughs) reduced themselves in the way that I've described. There are no governments in the between. There's only INI, which is the kind of meta corporation, and then there are there are what I call multinats, in other words, multinationals. And there's a sort of there's just pyramid upon pyramid. You know how like you know upper echelon capitalism is just like pyramid company, pyramid company is just company on top of company, and it's like that gone to gone absolutely mad. And it's all everything. You know there are no sort of rules and stuff. There's just algorithms. So it, it's become a, a pure techno administration, if you like. It's a techno bureaucracy. It's the, well, the it ultimate is. technocrats in charge where they're yeah. everything's processed yeah. and everything's data. And in that sense, I, I get that. It's, it's quite a, a bleak view. And, and, and you've touched a few times on, on the climate emergency happening in the background. I mean, did you feel you needed to sort of explore that as well as part of the world? Did it need to go that far? I didn't go there too much because I was already trying to cover so many aspects of the world uh, in there. I mean, suffice it to say that our very physical urban world has changed as a a result of the climate emergency and also as as a result of, I mean, I describe the cities that they're the network incarnate. They even like constructed like nodes of a network. Uh, And they've also gone very vertical because of the carnage that was happening supposedly in you know after, in around 2050 or whatever to do with all the you know well we know what we're headed for right we're headed for very different climate and the climate has completely changed in Asian mouth it's more like the climate of west africa now i mean when i went to accra one of the things that really struck me was it, it was almost impossible to walk around it was so hot and steamy you know and i've, I've kind of reproduced that in Asian mouth in 2087 it's become that the seas heave against the keys, you know, we've had to fortify ourselves against it. And so I don't go into too much detail because it's just too much going on in the book already in a way. So I didn't want to do that too much, but I make it clear that it has changed our physical environment enormously. Yeah, I, th- I think one thing that, that sort of came across to me was as well, that you've done very well is world build without sort of laying it on thick, you know, and, and I think I think you're right. I think you have done enough to sort of tell people what the world is like now and then you've put the sort of societal layer on top and it is a genuine sort of full dystopian world view it, it, it's quite interesting because I think a lot of books sometimes you read these things and they focus too much on one thing without 
setting up the parameters. I don't know if that's the right word for it, but they strike me as parameters as a technique. <laughs> yes, it is. And I, you know, it took me, it was a huge amount of mental effort to actually keep it all in my head. Um, especially when you write as I do, which is like for about half an hour, maybe an hour in the morning, early in the morning. And then like the next day I'll come back and I'll, I'll think to myself, hang on, you know, what was that detail that, that, that I need to get consistent? You, you have to go back over the book and make it consistent because you just can't make these things consistent. You need to let the imagination flow first of all, and then you kind of edit it for consistency later. But still, it was a lot yeah, of work. I think, I think one of the things I admire about it is that knowing you and what you do sort of in, in, in your other work, how you've resisted going deep into the descriptions of technology. Yeah, I did deliberately do that. I mean, it's, it really doesn't matter if, if things aren't quite right. Some of the best genre writers do that. I mean, going back to, you know, Mary Shelley with Frankenstein, the, the stuff's in there about electricity, but there's no real explanation of it. And there's no, That's right. you know, it's used for pure dramatic effect and to, yeah. to allow her to postulate the, the question of, can you bring people back to life and what would happen? You know, and all yes. that. I borrowed from some things that I found firsthand in a personal trip to Accra that I made some years ago. Some of the characters are African, but you know it's very far in the future, and they're they're sort of they're somewhat stylized characters. I don't I'm not presuming to borrow too much. You know, I'm, it's not my place to be Afrofuturist. I think is what I would say about that. But the Afrofuturist. Is futurist the right word for your writing? Well, I mean, there is a bit of a sort of, I mean, Wakanda happened after I after I started writing all this stuff, but <laughs> there is a bit of that, if you like, because, you know, West Africa has become the technical powerhouse. I mean, when I went to Accra, I actually was visiting technology centres in Accra at the time. You know, I was visiting hubs in Accra where people were writing apps and developing digital technology, you know, so I, I associated it with the digital that digital wave anyway you know I then went on on the same trip to go to Nairobi and Kenya and ditto because that was my re that was my kind of personal remit at the time was to was to go to tech hubs so on the one hand there's that that kind of influenced my 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 orientation here if you like and then there was also the Adinkra symbols which come from people who they go back at least the 19th century or earlier depending on where you look on the internet there's and of course as we've spoken about earlier there are these very, very old religions from West African parts of the world. I mean, Vodou, which is my name in the book for one of these vampire creatures, that is a, actually it's a, it's a deity or a spirit in the religion, which ultimately, when it went to the West Indies, became voodoo. You know, there's this sort of massive civilization of, of religions and symbolic representations of really kind of extraordinary ideas. I just loved all that stuff. And also in this book, I mean, I, I don't lay this on too thick, but there is a ship that goes from West Africa to near Bristol. And it's the opposite of the slave ships, right? It's come from there to here. And guess who the real slaves are in this world? We're the ones who are kind of shackled. So the beads that people wear are shackles. You know, we are shackled. One thing, another thing I was sort of quite interested in is the way people in genre books and, and sci-fi and modern things tend to use sort of and, and create jargon. And it's not really jargon, but one of the pieces of reductive language is where you've sort of 
you've got the robots, the AI, the cl- clarity that they are mechanical and, and this, that, and the other. You've got the psychic vampires. Then the people are called flesh. Yeah. And and I'm sort of interested in your reduction of people to flesh. Yes. <laughs> I don't know where that came from, really, but it's the network and the flesh work. Yeah. Right. So the network is is this power and we are the flesh work. And it's just a phrase that came to me that just kind of captured somehow this state that we reduced ourselves to, that we are flesh. You know, we're just flesh. We've kind of lost our spirit as human beings. We're not animated people with flesh that are kind of mere receptacles for content, you know, on generators of content. And yeah, the network and the flesh work is terminology that keeps coming back. Yeah. In the past, in presentations, I've used meatware to describe people. Yeah. And it kind of feels like that approach that we are off to meatware. Where I got that from was watching the mini car factory in uh, Cowley working. The factory is one giant robot, and they employ people to run in and push things into place at the last second to make sure they're firmly fitted because the robot can't quite do that yet. And that's what they do. Yeah. It just struck me as meatware. Yeah, that's kind of the the role that people have in this world I've 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 described. Yeah. Don't give the endings away or anything because people should read this. But talk to me a little bit about how you resolve some of the themes through the book. For instance, how David manages to sort of keep the vampire at bay, you know, while yeah. he's trying to sort of fall in love and and, and all of that stuff because he knows if he falls in love, she's gonna go. Yeah, the rules of Vodou's spirits are, are fairly complicated in a way. But because he knows, I mean, he's exiled himself from his daughter because he loves his daughter dearly. He can't hang around because this Vodou, which is in this little cage inside his mind, starts to come out when he sees her. So he knows he can't stay anywhere near her because he, he knows it wants to get, he doesn't know at that first point what exactly it wants to do, but he learns about what these things are capable of. So he takes himself to... Haven mouth of all places, but that's where he takes himself to. And there he meets Pempamsi, who is on a kind of mission. But the thing about Pempamsi is she also has a Vodou inside her. And there's a rule, as it turns out, of Vodous. So if I had a Vodou inside me and you had a Vodou inside you, Richard, we'd be safe from one another because two Vodous cannot enter the same mind together because they would mutually annihilate themselves. And that's one of the rules of Vodus. It's one Vodou per flesh, to use the jargon. <laughs> well, at least they think they're safe from one another. They're never really quite sure. But he does start to fall in love with her. And she does. She represents the means towards his redemption, ultimately, because she is someone who, I mean, he's got this awful thing inside himself and he's totally dehumanised himself, you know, he, because he needs to just not feel anything. Otherwise, he's a danger to everyone around him. She, because of her own Vodou inside her, is such that he can actually start to fall in love with her and care about her. And he, you know, he that is his mission. He becomes somebody who is trying to save her because without giving too much of the plot away, she is the target of a of yet another vampire creature who's come on the ship and who has the means to extract her Vodou. Which, of course, if 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 her Vodou was extracted, she would immediately become vulnerable to David, and that, if you like, is the kind of tangle at the heart of this story. So, 
so Tim, you, you've got the book out. It's published. It's published by Naroma Press. Yeah, and Saroma Press. That's me, by the way. That's so you, I should make it clear it's a self-published yeah. book. I'm I'm quite happy that it's a self-published book. But I'm quite book, happy. I mean, it's good. Yeah. It's it's absolutely a physical book, though, and I've got a copy, a physical yeah. copy in front of me, and I think you have indeed. Yeah, there is yeah. something reassuring about the physicality of books. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm not really an ebook. You can get it as an ebook, but I'm not yeah. really an ebook person myself. I like the physical. Uh, I'd recommend buying it and getting the, the physical copy, frankly. So where next with the writing then? One thing that's happened over lockdown, you know, we've been in lockdown for almost a year now. Or it certainly feels that. I haven't written a great deal over that year. It just hasn't felt conducive to that somehow. I've been productive in other ways. And, and actually, I spent most of my writing energy on just getting this book out there. You know, I had to arrange to get it edited, get the cover done, all those sorts of things take an enormous amount of time. When you're self-publishing, it's just an awful lot of work. But one of the things I'd love to do with this book, to be honest with you, is to turn it into a screenplay. Various people have said to me that they could see this as a film, and I would love to see that happen, obviously. So I might try and adapt it into a screenplay, as it's just going to find the right people to um, agree with me about that, yes. That was the interview with Tim Kinberg. If you want to find out more about Tim or Vampires of Avonmouth, here is what you can do. Yeah, well, if you if people go to a search engine with Vampires of Avonmouth, they'll find me. I've got my website is champignon.net, as in French for mushrooms.net. If you find that, there's a page about my writing and you can click to go through to Vampires of Avonmouth. But if you want to go straight to the book, just type that at Vampires of Avonmouth into a search engine that will, it'll take you to that page very easily. Thank you to Tim and to Richard for recording today's interview. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you do read the book, then let us know. You can contact us on Twitter at Technique UK or on Instagram at Technique Podcast. We will be back again soon with another podcast and some of the themed episodes that we mentioned in the last show. To make sure that you don't miss any of these, make sure you subscribe to the show on whatever platform you are listening through. And while you're there, why not take a moment to give it a five-star rating? We will be back again soon, but in the meantime, take very good care of yourself. Goodbye. Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century, putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first Technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.